Okie dokie. Howdy, partners. We are back. Doing what we do best, which is chat somewhat aimlessly and in an unstructured fashion here on Colin. Waiting for uh, Richard to arrive as usual, and there he is. Hey, Michael, what's up? What's happening with you? Nothing much. What's the what's the vibes based international order? <laughs> uh, good question. I just I thought of the term because I read a or I was uh, informed about a bill that was just signed into law by uh, Biden. It basically seems to grant the U.S. universal jurisdiction and across the entire world to prosecute war crimes involving any person of any nationality, whether it be the perpetrator or the victim. You know the corruption laws like work like that already, right? What do you mean? I I, I think that you basically. I know that they. I I know it comes basically if a, like Exxon Mobil like tries to bribe some African government to get something from them. Like they can, they they could prosecute you for that. I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly if it's like if like two people who have nothing to do with the United States, like someone's just corrupt in their own country, like the U.S. claims jurisdiction. I'm not sure, but I know. Well, least- yeah, but but yeah. So I mean, in order to be analogous, there it would have to be like I don't know, an Argentinian ex or oil executive engaged in a corrupt corrupt transaction with like a Kenyan I think, firm or I something, think, like, and then the U.S. Go- prosecutes them. I think they do go after governments. Um, they, they like, there's just like uh, these, this, like, I remember there was a son of some African dictator, like Central African Republic or something. Um, and they put sanctions on him just for his own corruption. And I don't know if they could prosecute you for that. Well, right. Um, I mean, there are sanctions that are applied yeah. across the world for, you know, infractions that don't have anything necessarily uh, to do directly with some violation of, of U.S. law, although I guess that can be claimed. But we're talking here about a criminal prosecution where the U.S. is basically claiming universal jurisdiction within its own courts uh, for the entire world. Um, so, yeah, it just it just struck me as an interesting um, sort of, you know, example of the supposed rules-based uh, international order always seeming to be sort of uh, warped when it's convenient. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I want to say that that's actually what it, I, I want to say it is equivalent. The U.S. human, I mean, the human rights thing. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, th- I think you're maybe or maybe or maybe it's not. Maybe I'm misremembering that. Uh, so what's this law say? Um, well, it says that basically the U.S. has that now declares authority. First of all, it's, it's amazing because like oftentimes – uh, even me, as someone who tends to be somewhat more attuned to these types of things than the average person, like doesn't find out about them until they're passed. I mean, doesn't find out about pending legislation like this until it's actually passed and enacted. Even though, like, I tried to follow the developments around the, the, the National Defense Authorization Bill and so forth pretty closely, but this was sort of apparently a standalone bill that was passed by unanimous consent in the 24 hours before uh, Zelensky arrived in D.C. last month for his big trip or big visit. Um, And so I guess the implication being that this could theoretically be invoked to prosecute Russian officials for their conduct of the war. Now, there had been a bill that had been passed in conjunction with the NDAA that had been basically enveloped into the NDAA that carried out a similar function, but this one 
goes further in sort of expanding the uh, prosecutorial jurisdiction of the U.S. for any person of any nationality who commits a war crime against any victim of any nationality anywhere in the world and then is somehow, quote, present in U.S. Uh, territory can then be prosecuted even if there's no U.S.-based victim or there's no otherwise uh, – uh, there's otherwise no connection at all to the U.S. And it also um, asserts that there's no um, – there's no limitations for uh, – there's no statute of limitations. So the wording in the bill is at any time without limitation, quote, unquote, can this power be carried out. Um, and the the funniest thing to me or – I mean the most, the most darkly comical thing to me when I read it was, number one – the end of the at the end of the bill, it goes out of its way to just clarify that no, nothing in this new law shall be construed to signal support for uh, ratification or accession to the Rome Statute, which is basically yeah. the you know the treaty that established the International Criminal Court, which the U.S. Not, doesn't participate in by matter of statute, meaning it bars any. Um, any engagement with the International Criminal Court and says, like a matter as, as a matter of U.S. law, that no U.S. person can be prosecuted in, at the Hague, um, and so it disclaims explicitly that this should be read as in any way providing support for U.S. Um, engagement in that international entity that allegedly already prosecutes war crimes and has this sort of universal. Uh, jurisdiction, but then another crazy thing is it also uh, explicitly disclaims that any of these prosecutions could be subject to uh, judicial review. So here's what it says: certifications under subsection F and input from other agency heads under subsection G, which is basically just those subsections are basically just the, the attorney general in consultation with any other department head like the, like the uh, Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense can just issue what's called a certification, which is essentially just a finding that prosecution is warranted. Um, and none of this is at all subject to judicial review. So it's just a unilateral declaration that uh, no judicial review is possible for the, these um, prosecutorial actions, which is kind of crazy. It's I never, never really knew that um, a branch of government could just declare itself immune to review from another branch of government seems like potentially a dubious constitutional theory, but I don't know. I'll have to consult some expert on that. I've, I've heard like right-wing people make the argument that you could do that for like abortion. Like it's apparently like a, an iffy, an iffy constitutional theory. We could just say the court doesn't have jurisdiction to hear this case, even though it might be constitutional. They just don't have jurisdiction. It's not done very often. Um, so, so this is, so this is a new law and this is good. What's this law called? Um, it is called the Justice for Victims of War Crimes Act. And it was uh, signed into law by Biden on January 5th. Um, and I just I saw it because it was being promoted by a person whose position I didn't know existed. But, of course, I guess I'm not surprised that it exists. It's the uh, Ambassador... Uh, Ambassador Beth Van Schack, whose uh, position is the, it's like Ambassador for Office of Global Criminal Justice. It's just one of these State Department positions that just gets invented out of thin air. 
And um, yeah. So you have where, to be president of the U.S. So if you're in the U.S., they say you, you we, the Vicky Spats, you know, this crazy woman, Sparks. Uh, <laughs> she's like, yeah, war criminals should never be able to escape justice in the United States. So they're worried about war criminals, I guess, running away and just hanging out in the U.S. But this is like tough for foreign policy. I mean, this is for foreign policy. This is tough. I mean, because you could have a rogue prosecutor. You could have some U.S. ally who comes to the country. I mean, that happens a lot. That happens a lot. Um, yeah, could potentially be uh, you know who potentially could be charged. But the thing is, I mean, it's I mean obviously prosecutions like this are going to be inherently political because it'll have to do with the balance of power. Who's even in a position where they can carry out a prosecution like this against a hostile state or hostile state um, actor? But this is even more just overtly political. At least if you read it, because the prosecution can only be undertaken at the direct certification of the U.S. Attorney, U.S. Attorney General. Um, so it's not as though you like line prosecutors uh, who on a lower level can be deployed throughout the world. I mean, who knows how it would work in practice, but like a, on a first blush reading, it doesn't seem like it's, uh, contemplating that you'll have just run of the bill prosecutors going around investigating war crimes and then, you know, uh, making prosecutorial decisions without going through going to the top of the chain of command so in practice it seems like it would be you know the head of the departments and the attorney general basically unilaterally decreeing that these prosecutions are warranted and then claiming to have no claiming to not be subject at all to any judicial review so i mean does that mean that the supreme court has would have no jurisdiction according to the wording of this law to like evaluate the constitutionality of various procedures that were employed? I don't know. It's just uh, it's pretty amazing just as an exertion of, you know, just raw hegemonic power. Now, I know a lot other jurisdictions around the world do claim to have this sort of universal authority to prosecute um, war crimes, but usually it's in conjunction, I think, with international bodies like the International Criminal Court or whatever. This is the U.S. claiming to have that jurisdiction located within its own domestic courts. Um, now, who knows if they'll ever actually use this power, um, but it does seem like it's pretty plainly tailored to, uh, you know, focusing on retribution against uh, Russian officials potentially, which kind of, you know, mm. underscores that it does seem like a lot of the um, implicit yeah. and sometimes even a bit explicit uh, warnings coming out of U.S. policymaking apparatus with regard to like the ultimate resolution for the Ukraine war is like some version of, U- of regime change, or at least it's like threatening that or using that as a specter to, I don't know, uh, heighten the um, intensity of the policy aims. You're, uh, the, um, yeah, I, I don't imagine many Russians are going to be fleeing to the U.S. I mean, uh, after their war crimes. So I, I don't think it's going to happen. Apparently, there's been cases where, uh, like, uh, people have committed war crimes, like people who became immigrants to the U.S. Like, maybe, you know, it's not, it's not potentially possible, like a Russian soldier <laughs> who could come to the U, immigrate to the U.S. and then, uh, uh, it could turn out he committed some war crime, I guess. But, like, you know, Putin's not going to, like, decamp to the U.S., right? So it's like, you know, it's like a, you know, it's like a, I don't know, like, like, I don't know. Like, a lot of countries do this. This is not unprecedented, right? Um, Spain, I don't know. They, they, I, I didn't. They, like, indict Rumsfeld and, like, Spain. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that came to mind. I guess Spain does claim that jurisdiction, but um, 
I don't know. I guess maybe it's not unprecedented, but I don't know if it has a precedent within the U.S. I mean, I don't know if the U.S. has ever claimed to possess this authority before. Well, it's a new um, law, so I you know. That. And also, Spain is not like running the Western national security sort of agglomeration, so it has a bit less of uh, policy when it comes from their courts. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, like George W. Bush has not traveled to Spain or whatever since he left office because there's some sort of active prosecution or active like uh, investigation of him underway. And I think the same with other Bush administration officials. I don't recall the exact details of that. I don't remember if it's solely limited to U.S., or to Spanish um, domestic courts, or if it's in conjunction with some sort of international body or whatever. But this strikes me as potentially being unique in that it's like explicitly a uh, limited to domestic U.S. authority, and it's and they go out of the way even in the text of the law to uh, disclaim that has has any relation whatsoever to U.S. involvement in any kind of international. Um, judicial body that might have some sort of claim jurisdiction over uh, war crimes prosecutions, which the U.S. You know, adamantly rejects the authority of. Um, they're still in, in effect right now. It was reaffirmed in another um, bill that was sort of uh, folded into the NDAA, where this um, American Servicemen Protection Act of 2002, which is basically not just decline, not just the doesn't just codify that the U.S. will decline to join the International Criminal Court it exp- expressly rejects that any U.S. national could ever be prosecuted for war crimes or anything else in this um, International Criminal Court. So, um, yeah, it's just uh, it's a pretty naked display of hegemonic power, which I guess you wouldn't find that surprising because the U.S. is in a position to do that. But it's not hard to imagine how this would be interpreted if, like, I don't know, China asserted the same power, right? Or uh, even Russia. So I don't know. Just um, something I took note of and then decided to come up with a new phrase called called. uh, vibes-based international order because I'm not sure that the rules-based international order we hear so much is really consistent with the logic undergirding this particular law. Okay. Makes sense. So the tank thing, I mean, is interesting, right? So, you know, we, we saw this coming. Um. Explain, because uh, I haven't been as scrupulous in the past week or so um, following war development, so uh, I might have missed the specifics of this. Oh, so the U.S. is sending uh, Bradley. Did you see that? They're not considering not uh, – they're considered not tanks. We might have talked about that last week. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that last week. Is that the same thing? Uh, but there's another one too. There's a British thing. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. I saw something to do with that, yeah. Yeah, so the uh, – uh, let's see, the um, – so there's a British thing, uh, and, uh, British and Polish government. So the British have... Um, okay, yeah, I did see this, yeah. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is uh, what they're going to try to, uh, uh, you know, this is basically uh, what we've talked about. It's, you know, one sort of step after the other. And, you know, we could have seen this coming months and months ago. I mean, there's no, I think, limits, right, to what people think that they're going to, Ukraine is going to get eventually. Um, mm-hmm. There's a really good uh, article on uh, Philippe Lemoine's. Uh, Philippe Lemoine has his own Substack now, and he um, has one about the. He's done the sort of the math on the um, ammunition, um, and basically what what each country is, you know, what each country can produce. Um, 
And, you know, I, I think that, I think the news is probably Ukraine's in a little, uh, probably a little better shape than, uh, than Russia. So between this and the, between the ammunition thing and the tank thing, um, yeah. And how does he, like, how, what does he draw on to make uh, those just, calculations? Uh, new, new, new stuff. So those news will say, oh, the U.S. can, you know, has, can make this much and like, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> because guess, as we've mentioned many times, it's sort of become like a running joke about how it's just declared with like seemingly no basis whatsoever, except for just these anonymous surmises from intelligence agencies that Russia is quote yeah. running out of missiles or ammunition or whatever. So I'm just, I'm just curious if he's basing it on anything. Yeah. Well, it's a bit Ukraine, more credible. The Ukraine stuff is based on, uh, Ukraine, uh, Western reports of what Westerners could do and what Westerners could provide. And, you know, you can believe those or, or not. Um, you know, apparently a lot of these small Eastern European countries do have industries that can produce ammunition. Uh, the Russia thing, I don't know. Yeah, you were, everyone's speculating. There is, um, you know, people have said like near the front that they're just using a lot less ammunition. So that might be an indication that they're, you know, if they had unlimited, you know, quantities, they would probably use a lot more. The fact that they used to use a lot more and now use a lot less is an indication. But, you know, what does that mean when they run out? Uh, you know, we don't know. Um, they are trying to make gains and the fact that they're not sort of throwing everything, you know, they're not going, you know, they're not firing at the earlier rate. I mean, is an indication that probably they have less than before. Um, but you know, who knows? Maybe they're, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad. And I know like people listening to this will, might be sick of our repetition, but I'm glad that we have an oral record here of just chronicling these incremental intensifications of armament supply because i don't know if we if i went to our archive from like six months ago yeah we wouldn't have that we would have been talking about it being practicable or even really that con- conceivable except as like a long-term potentiality that there would be this new sort of tank sharing arrangement that would be in effect i mean we could foresee it happening but like it wouldn't have been like a tangible thing yet, and yet, of course, it just inevitably becomes tangible. Um, so I just got you got to wonder like what what are we not conceiving of as tangible today? That's going to be tangible in six months. You know, I mean, maybe speculating isn't even that worthwhile of an endeavor here. But given the patterns and given the overall sort of trajectory of how things have been shaken out, which basically according to the same set of principles here. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes you, makes you wonder. Um, and, you know, I mean, in, in the broad scheme of things, it seems like the war's been going on forever at this point, but it's been less than a year. And, you know, I mean, it's not as though past conflicts that we are in like our pantheon of popular knowledge about warfare necessarily all just broke out into the open at like maximum intensity right away, right? I mean, they also tend to follow a bit more of an incremental pattern or um, these uh, lesser intensity stages of development, like famously the or infamously, the pho- there was a phony war period in World War II where after France and Britain declared war on uh, Germany, um, after the uh, invasion of Poland, there was no warfare really, except for some you know minor skirmishes here and there uh, between Britain and uh, Germany for like I don't know eight months or something or even longer. Um, and then you know a new a new phase of the war opens up after sort of like momentum builds and bureaucracy is created to support the respective war efforts and 
you know, um, inertia happens within the state apparatus of each country, like toward this particular warfare um, end. And um, yeah, I mean, again, we could speculate out the wazoo, but it does yeah. seem like there's something potentially reminiscent of that happening now. All we can, uh, uh, all we can uh, uh, do is trust that Biden knows what he's doing. Because all we do is, you know, we say, we sit here, it's like we're, we're saying, you know, we're, we're, we're forecasting, you know, month after month. Like, okay, it's going to be high bars, it's going to be tanks, you know. And I think this, this might be the, I don't know, like, it seems like the limit, if there's a limit, is uh, uh, things that could reach into Russia proper. Russia, you know, Russia, uh, you know, internationally recognized Russian territory. Uh, so, like, intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? So not uh, Crimea, tanks, then. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that's well, like, Crimea is not important. internationally recognized. Yeah, Russian but we territory. don't. We don't I mean, maybe. Yeah, that's the question. I mean, they're doing, uh, there's a report that Blinken tried to tell Zelensky like not to try to take Crimea, and you know, I don't think that they can do anything. I don't think they. I don't think they can stop them. So it's like you know, is there some weapon that can take give them everything in Ukraine, but not Crimea? No, probably not. Right. So what, if they want them to take everything but Crimea, they're going to be a. Uh, uh, you know, they're probably going to be able to take Crimea, and they're probably going to take Crimea, or at least make a cha- uh, an effort for it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the question, I mean, the question, uh, the question is, I mean, that's all, that's all the, if Ukraine gets to that point, that's far from, you know, guaranteed. Uh, well, the Russians, I mean, have you heard that they're holding back their, their, like, reserves? So, like, that's half of them they've uh, sort of sent to the front to, like, stabilize things, and then the other half, or they're just holding back. And so they um, you know, I guess I've heard bits and pieces of that, but I, I, more and more I tend not to put too much stock in these sort of transient updates on, like, the tactical situation. It just seems like not a whole really fruitful thing to put that much weight on. I don't on. know. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's something that seems like it could be verifiable, right, if they're – well, what, 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 what have you heard exactly or what, what's the situation? I think I heard situation? they mobilized 300 and they – 150 are at the front, and 150 are being basically trained and okay. held back. And they might, you know, they, I don't know, you know, for at one point, but that they might actually, you know, try an offensive. Uh, yeah, this. yeah. And well, so, yeah, and then there have been, I mean, the Ukraine military intelligence and stuff has been predicting for like a month now that there's supposed to be some major new offensive yeah, early this year, which, you know, who knows what to make of any of that. I mean, it could happen, it couldn't, uh, but... I don't know. I mean, it seems like the tangible things that could be analyzed really are from. I mean, maybe I'm Americocentric or something, but I tend to look at it through the prism of the U.S. Given that it's like the prime mover in the situation, and I don't know. If, like for one thing, I sent you that um, column that, like, the joint column by Condoleezza Rice and Robert Gates. Did you happen to look at that? It's not the most well-written or yeah, stirring uh, column in the world, but it's like you know, reflective of sort of some mainstream. Opinion that you could see having something of an influence on Biden, particularly Gates. Although Gates has been critical of Biden in the past, but they still, you know, served the Obama administration together, and like he's seen as like this elder statesman. And he's um, he's likening you know the current year to um, the seminal years. I mean, or they are, meaning Rice and Gates. To uh, I'll just read the read the uh, excerpt. This is the Washington Post, January seventh. Condoleezza Rice and Robert Gates say increasingly members of Congress and others in our public discourse are asking, why should we care? This is not our fight. But the United States has learned the hard way in 1914, 1941, and 2001 
that unprovoked aggression and attacks on the rule of law and the international order cannot be ignored. Eventually, our security was threatened and we were pulled into conflict. So they're saying that, quote, emboldened Putin might not give us the choice to avoid direct confrontation with Russia. It's this amazing sort of uh, inverted logic that you've seen from the beginning of the war, really, where they're, they're saying that like we're – in order to avoid more broad-based war, we have to intensify and prolong the war. Like it's nothing. <laughs> like they they couch it in, in these sort of like faux anti-war terms, or like war prevention terms, and as and make and act as though the solution is to actually expand the war. So I mean, the ultimate call here by Rice and Gates is to just you know they they don't really spell it out in those specific terms, but it's just send them everything they need. Don't be too um, hemmed in by these artificial constraints that the U.S. is imposing on itself in terms of the like intensity of the weaponry, and and so on. And then the of course, like there's an obligatory uh, Churchill uh, quote that's supposed to be redolent of uh, Zelensky when he appeared before Congress. So I don't know. It seems like there's not there's not a whole lot of a um, there, there still seems like a pretty solid consensus within like the extremely within the center of like foreign policy thought or establishment thought like you're not seeing even like you know during the Iraq war there would have been uh counter arguments or there would have been much more dissension than there is now I mean we've talked about that before but like I don't know I'm not seeing much sign from a US standpoint that within like the sectors of elite opinion that you think would have an influence that there's any alteration at all in terms of like what the objective is supposedly um is supposed no, to be no, here they have, they have an objective don't they want ukraine to to win don't they want ukraine to well yeah i, mean, I thought they, they went in the opposite direction they started by saying in the article that uh uh you know like time is on russia's side blah 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 so i thought they were gonna say like you know make a deal or something but no they go the opposite direction and they say right. ukraine like all the weapons you know it wants and you know, I think there's clear there's a strategy. They're just they're just uh, you know, I think the establishment is united. Usually, you know, Gates, you thought of somebody who's not the most gung ho about war. Uh, but I feel the him and Connolly's rice are writing this. I mean, I think it's an indication that the American uh, foreign policy establishment is very united. I mean, I think they want, I think they want, you know, I don't think it's like that confusing. I mean, I think they want Ukraine to win, and I think they want to. Turn up, you know, the sort of turn up the heat on Russia as time goes on. So I think that's, you know, I think that's pretty clear. That's the strategy, um, and yeah, I, I don't think there's anything like too like mysterious about that. No, it's not a mystery. It's just again, I guess, guess getting back to that whole like heuristic of the six month projections, and you know, looking back six months ago from now, uh, um, and then six months in the future. If the general thrust of this advice is followed, and there's every indication that it will be in terms of, you know, this sort of renewed urgency that time is not on Ukraine's side and therefore there has to be a more intense, focused commitment without a remaining – without the limitations of whatever constraints that uh, Biden has placed on the current provision of armaments, then, you know, you got to wonder that <laughs> we could be in like a radically different world in, in six months. I mean, I, I don't know. It's – um Especially if they're still in this mindset where they're likening the current period to these epochal periods in the past hundred years or so. So if like 2022, 23 is 
occupying the same like space in their sort of mental, um, uh, you know, mind frames as 1941, 1940, uh, 1914 and 2001, then it seems like, you know, they're, they're kind of, uh, jonesing for some sort of dramatic resolution that I don't think is going to be satisfied. I don't think that, that like desire is going to be satisfied by just sort of support of like perpetual stalemate situation. So in other words, it seems like the establishment is not going to, not going to be content to just kind of let this linger forever. Um, and there's going to be some push potentially to, you know, achieve what they regard to be like a satisfactory resolution militarily. Right. Or I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Uh, wait, say that again. So what, what's, what's the, what's your, what's your, what, what was your conclusion well, on that? I, I guess, you know, it, Rice and Gates in this column, right, say that the current period, 2022 to 2023, is in the same pantheon of these ep- epochal years in American history as uh, 1914, 1941, and 2001, right? Uh-huh. So it would seem that if their opinion as expressed in this op-ed is reflective of general establishment opinion that's affecting the conduct of the war effort on the part of the Biden administration, then there's some like desire for some like dramatic resolution or some like dramatic, like, I don't know, military finality to the conflict well, such that they're not going to be content with some sort of just protracted stalemate type situation where it's like ambiguous who the victor is or that, you know, maybe even Putin could, an argument could be made that he made some strategic gains. It seems like given the uh, enormity with which they're viewing this period as, you know, comparable to 1914, 1941, 2001, that they want some sort of like dramatic resolution at some point in the relatively near future. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could be just, you know, it could be a, uh, they want, you know, it's sort of a, uh, uh, it's on a spectrum and they just want, you know, the Ukraine to do as good as possible. You know, do you need a collapse of Russia or something? Like, do you need Ukraine to take everything? I'm sure they would, I'm sure they would uh, uh, prefer that. Um, I think what they want, I mean, they, they, they say time is on Russia's side, so I wonder if they give all the same to Ukraine. And nothing good happens, right? Ukraine doesn't advance at all. I wonder what they would say then, right? It's just, you know, there's no your Russians. They'll, they'll still say support Ukraine, right? Because you, the, the argument would be exactly the same because it would still be, you know, international aggression cannot be, cannot be punished. It's just defensive rather than, than offensive, rather than taking back territory. So, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, I think this is just interesting. It's interesting for just where the establishment is. I mean, I, you know, it's sort of like, this is like why, like, they're going to, try to take back Crimea, for example. Like, nobody's right. going to stand up when if Ukraine gets to Crimea and say, uh, oh, no. Wait, yeah, hold Crimea. your horses, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, after, after, after success. I mean, and again, I mean, that's why I, try, that's why I'm trying to, like, think of this in a bit longer, in a bit longer term of a time frame, right? Because, again, it really should be emphasized that when the war started, even within the first couple months, and you and I probably talked about this, it was on the verge of inconceivable that Crimea was going to be seen as a viable military target that the U.S. would help subsidize and coordinate operationally the retaking of. Right? That was not something that was in the cards. Now it's basically a fait accompli. 
And that's a huge, I mean, quote unquote, escalation in just the overall war aims. So, I mean, that's why I'm trying to think six months from now, what could the escalation in the war aims be that we're not fully cognizant of at the moment, given the past trajectory and given the pattern that seems to be continuing unimpeded? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're just, we're just observers. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if all we can do is hope, is hope Joe Biden like knows what to do. I mean, yeah. that's not the most uh, reassuring situation to be in. I don't, I don't think the guy, I don't think the guy is that out to lunch. I think, I think Biden is, uh, I think he's got a plan for Ukraine. Um, maybe not for everything else, but I, you know, I'm surprised. I, you know, What's I the plan? Biden, uh, just win? Yeah, I think that I think it's just win, but like you know, it's smart. He's was that was that like, Lyndon Johnson's plan in Vietnam, just like win? Uh, yeah, I mean, probably. I mean, was that George uh, Bush's plan in Iraq? Just, yeah, you know, probably, let's just yeah. win. I don't know. He seems he seems more competent than Bush at least so far, and probably more than uh, <sighs> Biden. Well, They're making gains, right? They, the trajectory is in Biden's direction uh, so far. And you know, Biden would say this is not even America fighting, right? It's just America supporting another country. Um, uh, yeah, so well, I don't know when, when, and when full stop or just like when and then a period is not like the most comprehensive strategy no, sort but of doctrine mean, like, I've ever heard. Doing, he's doing things that are logically connected to winning, right? Like giving Ukraine like a lot of stuff, and, but like doing it sort of gradually. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's just accepted since February of last year that because Biden nominally says, hey, we don't want World War III, but we do want Ukraine to win, that, that that's like a perpetually tenable strategic sort of outlook that's never going to divert from its like original premises. And I, I just don't see any evidence for that at this point, given that – I mean – if the U.S. is now like fur- furnishing these like tank deployments, I mean, I don't know. That was never. If Biden had said last February, we're going to pr- basically provide Ukraine an entirely new military. There's going to be these tank transfers. Yeah, the There's going to be these that, you know, Patriot why, missiles. That's why his strategy makes so much sense because he didn't do that. That wouldn't be the way to win to like cause a backlash and freak people out, right? The way to do it would be this way, which is just like every two weeks. Like just give them, you know, something else. I mean, that's basically what we've been doing. We've been doing so regularly. Well, yeah, it makes sense from a PR standpoint. Yeah, I mean, because it, 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 well, it sort of gradually habituates the public into just yeah, accepting well, as PR like is... a foregone conclusion this incredibly robust military commitment. That if it had just been done all at once, maybe would have engendered a bit more skepticism. Uh, well, that's the point. I mean, that's that's Biden having a plan, right? Because he wants yeah. to be able to do this without freaky having a political backlash or freaking people out. So this is this is sort of what you would do, right? Um, so it makes sense. I don't think he's like so dumb. But like he can't like me and you sit here and we foresee. Oh, they're going to end up giving tanks. They're going to end up giving this. They're going to end up like they can see. Like Blinken and Biden can see that, right? If we could see it. Uh, so you well, know, no, I don't think they're dumb. Attention. I don't think they're. I don't think they're dumb. I just think that they're in. I mean, we talked about this. I think last week. I just think they're in sort of. Again, I, I question if we had Joe Biden on this call in right now, if we could get a concrete answer for if and he was given truth serum, meaning he was being 100 percent honest. I doubt he could really tell us what the overall objective was, except just a couple of cliches that are pretty reminiscent of what's in this Rice Gates op-ed. I mean, I don't view that as like a especially compelling, reassuring, like strategic philosophy. I think it's just inertia and momentum. Without really a clearly delineated endpoint. 
I don't know why you think that. I don't know why you wouldn't just think that they have a, like, maybe it's not your your preferred policy, but I think they have a policy and they want to accomplish something. I don't think it's like that that op-ed was, like, so ridiculous, like it didn't have any ideas. I think that, you know, they, what does it say? I mean, it's not that complicated. It's just, like, time is on Russia's side for reasons, and then, you know, so give Ukraine all the weapons so it can take territory and blah, 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 international order. Like, you know, it makes sense, I mean, on its own terms. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense on its own terms. I just don't think like the precise nature of the policy is really spelled out to any no, they to don't want to a degree that. of satisfaction that anybody should really be content with, even if they don't agree with the policy. No, like, I, I, you can imagine not agreeing with the policy, but being able to accept the contours of the policy as like having been established. I don't think the contours of the policy have really been established beyond a few cliches about. The vibes-based international order and just military victory. Is that, is that and, because they're not, they're not telling you the strategy or because of like what the strategy looks like? Because from what it looks like, I mean, it looks like they're doing a lot. And like, so like, it's just you want them to explain it to you and they're probably not going to do that. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd love an explanation, wouldn't you? I don't really think there is one. I, that's, that's, a, that's my point. Like, I don't think that even if, again, you, you gave Biden and Blinken and whoever – truth serum that they could provide us with a fully developed strategy. I think it's yeah, just, I, I think the strategy, the strategy is just the inertia at this point. Well, why do you think that? Why can't, why can't the strategy just be gradually give them more weapons and hope they take back as much territory as possible? Well, that could be the strategy, but that's just like a cliche. I mean, that, that, that's a, that's a, that's a two sentence strategy. Well, yeah. I mean, you want a bigger strategy? What, what, what else do you want? What would the strategy look like you? Um, you know, what, what is, what is seen, uh, what does victory mean? I mean, are they saying that victory is the full military expulsion of Russia from every single inch of Ukrainian territory? Um, okay. I mean, that's consistent with what the Ukrainian government officials say, but I don't know that the U S has really ever explicitly articulated that as the strategy Except for just claiming that they're deferring to what the Ukrainian I think the government wants. Is probably, I mean, they, they'll defer to Ukraine and they'll try to prefer to aid as much. And like, if Ukraine wanted to stop it, Crimea, I don't think the U.S. would say keep going. But I think it's like, you know, they're going to give the, you know, they don't have to like plan every like contingency of how it's going to end. They could just say, you know, we want to give, we want to give the support we can to Ukraine. What the U.S. has control over, what the Biden administration has control over, is the pace and the nature of the aid. So they're making decisions that seem to make sense. Um, and so that's what they can control. And then it's like, you know, it's up to Ukraine. They wanna, uh, I, I guess, you know, another, but another maybe unstated aspect of it that I'm uh, curious about are these insinuations of regime change, right? I'm not saying that necessarily if you got, if you gave Biden truth serum, he would overtly declare we're trying to impose regime change into Russia. But he did say that at the famous speech in March in Warsaw last year. You do have these like different legislative items that are coming through the through, through the pike, um, where it's contemplated that the U.S. could try Russian officials in U.S. courts. Um, you, you know, you have Ukrainian government officials. Remember that article from uh, from last month where they're prepping everyone to just like accept the dissolution of Russia. You know, is, is there a maximalist version of the strategy that we're not maybe being apprised of? And we're just like being told to just accept these handful of cliches that don't seem like they're going to amount to any final resolution anytime soon because 
the most maximalist version of the strategy is kind of too much to bear all at once and we're just being habituated to accept it once it sort of becomes the yeah, more overt strategy. What is that? If that's the strategy for a dude, what does that look like? I don't, I don't like think these laws like lock the U.S. in to doing regime change or anything. I'm like, so what does it mean? Like Ukraine starts winning and then what? We tell Ukraine to go to Moscow? Like what does it mean to lie? Yeah, or, you know, there's some... You know, I I don't know. I mean, the, it gets back to the whole bleed Russia dry concept, um, which you know somebody in the U.S. European Command uh, told yeah. me last spring was the strategy. Yeah, I don't. I don't um, and well, you know, what is, what, you what does it mean for Russia to be bled dry? I mean, once they're once they're bled dry, what happens? They collapse, right? So, I mean, that could that, that could be a more um, indirect me- means of fostering collapse, or it could be more direct. I mean, who's to say? I mean, the, the Ukraine has shown uh, growing audacity in the kind of strikes it's willing to carry out. I mean, would it would it shock you if they launched like some sort of assassination attempt at some point? I don't know. I mean, who's to say? Yeah, no, that wouldn't that wouldn't shock me. The uh, uh, the the Nord Stream pipeline is interesting, right? That one is interesting. Um, and so I don't know. That's an indication of bleeding Russia dry, cutting Russia off. Makes sense. I mean, assuming that what we don't know who did it, but if it was the U.S., uh, that would sort of make sense. Yep. Um, any non-Ukraine related uh, news items to touch on before we go to some calls, or is that uh, the uh, the big what the big ticket? Oh, you were. Right. I think so. They did get some uh, the, the Congress thing. We, they did end up with Kevin McCarthy. Um, yeah. And they did end up with the, you know some uh, 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 actual um, concessions. Act- yeah, con- actual concessions. So, so I, uh, so you were right. I think. I think that's what you were arguing. Um, well, yeah. I, mean, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't arguing that like on faith. I was arguing that just as a matter of what was being expressed as the objectives of the Republican sort of rebels when the stalemate was underway so yeah it does seem like it actually has been incorporated into the congressional uh, or the house rules in a seemingly meaningful meaningful way so yeah i mean i it's hard I, I don't know if you could really argue now that the you know three days or whatever it was of delay in electing a speaker was just this totally um performative uh you know exercise in just vanity right i mean it does seem like it actually was something substantive that came came of it yeah, and we'll see. I mean, it's so funny. Like one one member of Congress can call for a, a vote of no confidence. It could be a Democrat too. There's no no requirement that it has to be a Republican. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this will be entertaining. Oh yeah, I mean, and it's uh, it, it, one member of Congress can now call for a vote on whether to vote for. <laughs> Oh, the a motion of no confidence they, in the speaker. Oh, it's not as to, if one member of Congress can just themselves initiate that uh, vote, they, right? So they have to call for the vote to have the vote, right? Uh, <laughs> which had been the which had been the policy, which had been the rule in Congress for decades until be. like five years ago, when it was invoked by I think actually Mark Meadows, who later became Trump's chief of staff against John Boehner. Uh, in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, and that eventually kind of steamrolled into Boehner uh, resigning the speakership for uh, for Paul Ryan, and then they, and Ryan kind of consolidated power and got rid of the rule because he didn't want you know that threat looming over him. 
Um, so it's not like this unprecedented radical act necessarily. They're basically reverting to 2015 rules, like like what Twitter should be doing. Mm. Okay, got it. All right, let's go to uh, let's go to callers. Hey, Matt, our uh, Romania correspondent. Yeah, hopefully has a uh, exciting update. Uh, nothing from an extremely unexciting question. So you mentioned the like. You mentioned the Condoleezza article. And by the way, Bob Gates really, if you read that book, he really does have like a severely personal patron of Joe yeah, Biden. Yeah, he was wrong. And, and it became like, a Republican talking point to quote one line from that book where he, where he says yeah. something like Biden's been wrong about every major decision. Yeah, except, except during the decisions of the Obama administration, it, he is more right than Bob Gates. And then Bob Gates yeah. is more right than Hillary Clinton, right? right? Like, so it's like a period. Like, I've got, like, but like, yeah, one of these decisions that he's saying Biden has been consistently wrong about was opposing the surge of troops to Afghanistan right. in 2009. God, I want to, uh, God, I want to say what I want to do to portray us because we're being recorded. Anyway, no, no, let's talk about another guy. Did he, I don't know, this is extremely dull and lame, but uh, did you see the Kaplan, uh robert Wright debate? Who who debated uh, the slate the 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 the, uh, the, the yeah. fossil of a sl- of the slate personality? Yeah, the one. I mean, look, I used to read his stuff about how the F thirty five was overpriced. You know, like he used to be reasonable, I guess. When you say debate, where did the debate take place? On Twitter or like on a blogging head sort of thing? Blogging, okay. Blogging head TV. <laughs> a classic. I mean, blogging head TV. I almost feel bad for Robert Wright because. When he first introduced Blogging Heads TV, it was like a revolutionary technology to bring together like bloggers who were at, in conflict with one another and actually have them face each other in like a yeah. stream. And they had to like set up like when Blogging Heads first started, they had to dispatch like assistance to the physical locations yeah, of the I participants and like set up like a webcam type thing that would then fuse them together. And it was like a whole complicated process. And it just became, you know, the most easy standard technology for anyone to use. But that was kind of a pioneering yeah. uh, idea when it first was launched. Yeah. Well, his, it, it stems from his like, by, by the way, non zero is a very good book, but it stems from his idea that like people need to like face up and debate ideas. Otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've been on it a couple of times uh, with uh, with Bob yeah, himself, I've, actually. And I, I read his book. Um, you oh, you have? Oh, yeah. I've re- and I read his book uh, when I was in college on uh, the evolution of God. Was that what it was called? Or the God something. Something on some – it was on God. Yeah. And the evolution of the conception of God throughout history. But it's, it's good. He's a he's – a, I, I like Bob Wright. Yeah, he's the only person I can stomach that criticized Anna Dasha. Which is, you know, most people do, so I can't stomach anyone. Wait, All Robert right. Wright criticized Red Scare? <laughs> oh, I just, I'm sorry to get into this, but like, <laughs> it was just so pathetic. He's like, they had, they had Steve Bannon on, and Steve Bannon on has a nationalist perspective. What we need is global cooperation. I think these, uh, like, he clearly has no idea about them, by the way. Like, like, but like, <laughs> it's just weird that he would be in a position. I, I just can't imagine yeah. the circumstances that led him to like uh, rattling off a criticism of Red Scare. But anyway, <laughs> he's like he's getting all wound up. But like, he, this is bef- kind of before they're too famous. But uh, I clearly does have no idea. <laughs> it's a weird crossover. Anyway, though, this motherfucker. So like, Fred Kaplan kept saying he has inside information that the CIA chief and a bunch of people offered a ton of off ramps to Putin, right? Like, 
Did, during dur war. during what time period? I mean, I guess I, should, I guess I should watch this or I should read something that like, Clapham wrote. Like, but like in the like run up to the war, or like the war has been yeah, okay. like the four to six months running up. Like he was claiming they offered him a bunch of off ramps, and that the the thing the sticking point, I guess, was like Putin wanted like I guess something in writing. I guess which would be a treaty. I don't know. <laughs> but, but well, he wanted I, he wanted he wanted something other than a verbal a verbal agreement, as right. was made allegedly uh, to uh, Gorbachev around the um, eastward By, expansion uh, of NATO Germany, after. Yeah. Uh, Beyond um, East Germany. I decided a story about James Baker. Apparently, he was incredibly abrasive and in person, and like kind of like autistic dude. Really? Like I don't understand that. Like it, yeah, he's, but his like, his whole rep is like as this is this is like agreeable uh, Texan uh, patrician type. It, yeah, and it's incredible diplomat. They almost got all these peace deals. And my friend's dad was the chief of staff, and he was trying to tell me that to say I should be a little less outspoken. But, like, I immediately, like, missed the main point. It was like, wait, James Baker? Like, he was doing all these diplomat deals. Uh, all right. So, yeah, yeah, there was a big, bi wasn't there a, sorry to keep interrupting, but I think there was a big biography. You know, of, ahead, uh, there was a big biography of James Baker within like, the past year or two. Did you read that by any chance? No, I should, though. I should talk, talk to my friend about it. Okay. Um, uh, no, but, like, okay, so the first point, I guess, with this debate would be, like, Fred Kaplan, like, is really, like, being insanely critical of John Mearsheimer, but whatever. But, like, I remember Fred Kaplan being pretty skeptical of American foreign policy. But I guess the second point is, okay, so he's saying these things, right? And, like, you're going to look at this figure as maybe not, like, wh whether it's true or not is kind of irrelevant. There's a reason they're putting it out there. And is it the reason they're putting it out there? Well, like, could, I guess I'm asking you, could this imply that, like, maybe it's not going as well for Ukraine as we thought it was because they're trying to say, you know, we offered a bunch of peace deals. You know, we tried to stop this. I haven't seen a lot of this reporting. I mean, this there. is just Fred Kaplan talking to Robert Wright. Seems like if this was a press to tell people, you know, if they wanted people right. to know this, it would be in the New York Times in a front page story with, uh, uh, with anonymous sources. I don't know. Maybe Kaplan is telling the truth. But what are these off ramps? Like, are they? Are there were no no nail? Did they offer that? Because that's the thing. That's yes, the they did. They did. That's what his friend Kaplan is saying. That the CIA chief and a bunch of people personally went to Putin in person and, and said, said that they won't expand NATO officially. Yes, officially, and they would. And they would. And they would uh, announce it and sign it and whatever. Well, they know that Putin wanted a signature thing, and then they were trying to do a public statement, and then this is all Fred Kaplan's thing, though. He was very strange in this interview. Has has Fred Kaplan reported this anywhere, or is it just coming out in just um, sort of extemporaneous discussion? I think it was. Well, I think it's this thing. You know, I do have a day job. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you mean you don't full? You don't you you, you, you don't f uh, follow this crap full time to give us information uh, once a week? I think I follow it enough. <laughs> enough is my love. No, he like. Well, he was. I guess this whole thing popped off was he wrote something that was like extremely viscerally critical of John Beersheimer, and maybe he mentioned this in the Beersheimer thing. Uh, I think he did. Say, I think in the interview he said he mentioned that he has a personal insider source that said all these people went in to do the off ramp, and like I think he mentioned it in his piece on Beersheimer. I don't even remember where he wrote the piece. 
Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna Google around to see if I can find that, but you know, um, off ramps. I mean, I think I think there have been public offers of off ramps as well. It, in, in that, um, well, I'm, I'm trying to think because in the in the in before the war was launched, there were public disavowals that any off ramp, quote unquote, could include a formal codification of the military neutrality of Ukraine. Right? I mean, Blinken, I believe, said that directly, and even maybe Biden did. Um, so. That would have to mean presumably that Burns, the CIA director, was offering a completely contradictory off-ramp to what was being said in public, which wouldn't be out of the question in terms of what the CIA might do. But yeah, that's totally right. That's totally very plausible. Yeah, but it's but it's also plausible that like if you're seeing those, is that like a real off-ramp? If it's like the if it's like the ultimate mixed signal? Well, no more to the point. Like it's. It's hard, sorry to be like Marbluff here or whoever you want to say, or like Jarvin. It's hard to do a deal now when we've gone back on so many things, you know? Like, you know, I'm President McGuire. I just gave my last name. President, uh, <laughs> just last year, slices his finger inside the Treaty of Blood, and then uh, President Pompeo just abrogates it, right? Like, you know, like, that's why we should have, like, listen to you two and do, like, a consistent auto versus foreign policy. But I'm saying it's interesting to see if this actually really happens. Yeah. Well, I, I pulled up the um, Fred Kaplan-Robert Wright debate, which is on YouTube, entitled, quote, An Epic Debate on Ukraine and U.S. Foreign Policy. And it's uh, an hour and 45, 49 minutes, so yeah, hopefully I can narrow it down to where uh, Kaplan supposedly has this bombshell CIA-sourced uh, info that he hasn't reported anywhere, oddly. But um, there's a there's there's a like a times times they have a the time thing here. Uh, the NATO's role with the U.S. Uh, so impeding me to protect the debate on foreign policy. How bad? Uh, it doesn't actually say anything about the offer in the uh, show notes. Um, U.S. policy maybe forty four minutes in. If you look at the podcast, it's it's there. But okay, yeah, I mean, there was an interview I heard with Ryan Evans, who did with uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but one of the like top deputies to uh, uh, to Blinken, and he basically denied, you know, he would proudly denied that they ever made an offer about NATO. Uh, so there's yeah, different people saying different things. Yeah, uh, Blinken really sucks, by the way. Yeah, I, 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 I like who is Blinken? He's a fucking moron. How do you get it? To- I had that thought. I mean, he's been. Uh, such he's been very underrated in how terrible he's been. Yeah, and like I don't understand. I've never heard of this guy. You know, I feel like I'm falling way too closely. Well, I mean, he's he's been around. I mean, he's in that famous photo of uh, Obama watching the Bin Laden raid with all the people gathered around the desk. Oh, is he? Yeah, because he? he was like the deputy secretary of state, or he was he was in some senior level position at that point. But yeah, he's in that photo if you look it up. Oh, okay. So I guess yeah, maybe I just missed him. Yep. All right, this is fun. All right, well, thanks, Matt. Yeah, gave you homework, sorry. Talk to you later. Yeah. All right, uh, Jenny. Hey, there? guys. I thought you'd be talking more about Biden and Merrick Garland and special counsel. Yeah, what's, what is, what, what's, your, what's your thought on that? Well, it, it's a third trove of, of classified documents. It's not looking good. So, well, you guys I think? mean... I've been sort of uh, a little bit 
unplugged from the news cycle for the past week or so, but I did look into it a little today because I saw there was an, an announcement made by Merrick Garland of a special counsel, which is, you know, significant. Um, and, you know, I just can't help but be weary of people pretending to care about the management or handling of classified material on principle. Like they have actually some like committed investment as like a political principle in the management of classified material because it seems like it's just a proxy for partisan warfare at this point. And therefore like kind of caused me to roll my eyes when I hear developments about whether it's with Trump or with Biden. Like, I mean, if Biden had some stuff that had that bore classified markings on it in his garage next to his Corvette, I mean, do we actually care about that? As such, or do we care about it as like a matter of partisan warfare? Yeah, nobody cares about documents. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it doesn't. I, I, I never, I consciously didn't read anything. I don't know. Like, I see some people like, oh, Trump. Uh, like, I don't care. I don't care about the difference. I don't care about Biden. I don't care who's worse. It's just, I don't care about Hillary's emails either. I mean, all these stories are just like, you know, whatever. There's more important things to pay attention to in the world. I admit that I quote unquote cared about the Hillary email story from the standpoint of basically this all hands on deck movement to absolve her of any culpability or to act like there was no substance whatsoever to the issue where she was accused of and seemingly did. It's pretty much confirmed that she did basically, you know, destroy government records. Um, and at the same time, you had other people who run afoul of the government being uh, prosecuted incredibly severely for mishandling classified information. And so there was kind of like this elite carve out that was reserved for Hillary at the time. Um, and you know, she was investigated by the FBI for like a year personally for her involvement in the email server issue. And, you know, I guess you, you could make a similar argument with, with Trump if he actually did not declassify, as he claims, all those materials before they were, like, transferred into his private possession and then maybe something similar with Biden. I don't know, but it seems like it, it's, you know, uh, if there's any substantive issue here to be concerned about overall, it's just the overclassification regime, which has been widely commented on and now has gotten so expansive that it's uh, – you know, gotten people, you know, the top figures of both parties into legal hot water. I mean, I don't think anybody particularly thinks that Trump having, a, you know, a love letter from Kim Jong-un or Biden having whatever materials he had is actually a threat to anything or is uh, it's like a problem on its own terms. It's just like the inconsistency in the application of the law that people seem to be annoyed about, um, and especially as it relates to like partisan conflict, which I get, but it makes it hard to care on the merits about any one of these particular controversies. And I've felt the same way really about the Trump stuff in, um, in over the summer, especially that, especially given that it led to a raid of a, of a president's private residence for the first time. And under the auspices of the Espionage Act, which I don't know if Biden's ever going to be <laughs> charged with or if that's even going to be uh, wielded as some sort of leverage against him as it has with Trump. Um, so it seems like people are mostly invested in like the in inconsistency of the application of the relevant standards and legal strictures more so than they actually care about the handling of classified material as such.
Well, from what I read, the documents that came forth today were tied to the 2014 situation in Ukraine. And so I want to see those documents. Okay. I want to hear more about that. I want to hear if he was trying to hide some stuff. Well, if, that, if that's true, that. yeah, I would like to see those documents. Yeah. Where'd you hear that, Jenny? Where's that from? Oh, gosh, I've been everywhere today. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't source it. It's yeah, okay. I'll, I'll look it up and see. We'll look it. That's the deal. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. It, it, I, I did see it reported that he had some materials in. He reportedly had some pr- uh, materials related to his vice presidential tenure that were pertained to Ukraine. Um, so who knows? So you saw it too? Yeah, yeah I, I, I saw, but it was it was in very it was very it was in generalities. Like I didn't really specify anything except that the some of the materials apparently related to Ukraine, and there was also like. I think Iran, even the UK or something. I mean, it's hard to know what is even being referred to. Well, into your former conversation about the war and what's going on, you know, if it's true that there was just massive money laundering going on during the Obama years using Ukraine, and then we have the FTX scandal, and that's pointing to some Ukrainian involvement in terms of money laundering right now, um, I can connect those dots, even if you guys don't. I mean... If that's going on and they're using the wars for cover for all that, I, I would like to know about it. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. If, if, I if, 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 if evidence actually comes out showing money laundering is covered up, yeah, sure. Well, thanks for letting me call. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thanks, Jenny. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Um, I, and just to clarify, I mean, it does say here, uh, CNN reported that 10 documents with classified markings were and dated between 2013 and 2016 were found mixed within the Biden family papers. And some of those had to do with Ukraine and Iran. So um, it doesn't go into any detail beyond that, at least as far as I've seen. But it's very possible that um, it does show something that, you know, I mean, uh, Jenny, I don't want to make it seem like I'm not interested in seeing the materials that are more classified. I'm just not so interested in whether like Biden flouted a particular regulation around handling of classified materials absent some reason to be interested in the content of the material itself. And same with Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, I just saw, I totally yeah. agree. And yeah. I, I think there's overclassification of data that goes on all the time. And I'd like to right. see more transparency just on that point. But, you know, if the Biden family was over in Ukraine making bank while he was vice president, I want to know about that. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And we already know that <laughs> the Biden family didn't cash out on Ukraine to some degree um, with what, you know, Hunter did by getting paid 55,000 or was it 60,000 a month? I always forget the exact number. Something it was ridiculous. A lot to, of money. I think it was, I think it was as much as 60,000 a month to do nothing, um, but sit on yeah. a board ostensibly of a gas company, despite having no experience in Ukraine or with gas business. Well, and when Biden flew in and said, fire the prosecutor, Shokin, if you don't fire him, you're not getting the money from the Obama administration. And, you know, he bragged about it to the Council on Foreign Relations. This stuff is old news, but it is amazing to me how many people have not heard that story even today. Yeah. And uh, Lisa Marie Presley has died, according to the reports that we came out as we were on the call. The vaccine strikes again. So, Richard, are you convinced with no evidence that she died <laughs> because of the vaccine? You know, people, <laughs> a lot of people have died since the vaccine. Has come out. I mean, athletes, I, singers, uh, actors. Very, very quickly on that, right? Okay, so, I mean, it's within the realm of plausibility that 
given the vast universe of people who have taken the vaccine, a certain subsection of them had some adverse reaction and maybe had a cardiac event or whatever that you can trace to their taking of the vaccine. I mean, you, how could you rule out as the, that, that as a hypothesis, hypothesis, right? I mean, it should be investigated at least, or it's worth understanding if that's true or not. But I do find it odd that like every premature death now is like automatically attributed to the taking of the vaccine as if like before 2021, there were never any premature sudden deaths in the world. I mean, yeah. that's a bit much. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, there, there was. The, they have this athlete thing. There's like, there's been a ten thousand increase in ten thousand percent increase in like athletes dropping dead. And like the only this is like, there's like an academic paper. The academic paper source was like this one anti-vax website, and like it was just like listing random people, and like they weren't even like dying. Like some of them didn't even. Some like one of them like committed suicide. One of them like fell off a cliff. One of them just like didn't die. It's just random people. Just saying, like, athletes are, are fell off a cliff. <laughs> didn't you get banned? Didn't you get banned from Twitter for telling someone to jump off a cliff or something? Uh, yeah, I said we're going to throw an American off a off a cliff. Yeah. But I'll, 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 All right. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks. Thanks. Okay, Sheila. Uh, long time Sheila, no see. Hey, long time no speak. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy Kwanzaa. Life. <laughs> yep. Happy Winter Solstice. Did you see that the footage of the Azon, Azov Battalion in Ukraine having this? Like, oh yeah, that was Nordic, like yeah. quasi-fascistic or maybe outright-fascistic, like winter solstice. Yeah, uh, were they burning ceremony? Like- yeah, they, they burned like a whole. They burned like in effigy something. I forget. It was like a, it was like a uh, Viking boat or something. Was it? I mean, uh, or am I yeah, misremembering? Burned a Viking boat in effigy. What did they burn, Richard? You saw that? I, I remember that. I think it was a boat. Uh, yeah, let me. Maybe I'm just, you just implanted that in my mind. But yeah. They, uh, <laughs> well, they, they they burned something that was supposed to be like a reference to their supposed uh, Viking lineage from like Wait, antiquity guess, or something. I don't know. Well, anyway, sorry, Sheila. Which, Sheila, is, go ahead. which is fine. <laughs> I guess they're they're European, so I guess that's Sheila. What is that? What is heritage? They can do it, right? What is it? What is an unsanctioned <laughs> citizen? You've not been reached by American sanctions. Well, right now I'm I'm kind of you know it's about me waking up on a on a Tuesday morning going God, I think we were sanctioned. We were sanctioned during the 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 pandemic, and we have been sanctioned by CISA and DHS and the DNI tree and everybody else. Why? Why do they hate us? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this year the Azov Regiment celebrated Winter Solstice by burning a stylized Viking ship. Commemorating their fallen comrades and invoking Ukraine's Viking roots, and it's like this big like winter Ukraine? ceremony. Yeah, Ukraine, Ukraine has Viking roots. Then the Viking, a lot of Vikings, they settled in Russia and Ukraine, and they, you know, they like gather Finland, but, but you know, okay, yeah, and they kind of, and like they all gathered around it with like a torchlight procession sort of thing, which are no longer allowed, they, except but, for Ukraine. But they're going to cancel churches. Like Orthodox <laughs> churches. Yeah. Anyway. It's just as Ukrainian as burning a Viking ship. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, did you have a main uh, a main point to raise, Sheila? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole Russiagate thing is 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 a non. It's a nothing burger. You know, do you have anything on on the fact that you know the person of Devin Nunes, the the whole enchilada of nothing. You know, do you have anything? Wait, what? Um, uh, what? What do you mean the person <laughs> of Devin Nunes? He broke today, and it was essentially 
What broke today? Yeah, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter files. 14 oh, broke. there was a new Twitter files installment today. Okay, I haven't actually seen it yet. Oh no, I mean, I will I look it up. You in? Yeah. Okay. Fill me so, in. So uh, what happened today was that Mad Tiger dropped the Twitter files fourteen, mm-hmm. and in this, it was it was just RussiaGate. So oh. I well, imagine- well, this is up my alley. Then I I am embarrassed that I haven't seen it yet. Okay, so. Um, so I guess that leaves it to me to kind of fill in the fill in the blanks. Richard, did you see it at least? Don't no, I'm sorry. I, I, I paid attention to the first oh! few Twitter files, and okay. I, maybe there's too many. I, I think I've lost track of them. Yeah, I, I know it can be fatiguing after a while, but uh, but I did I did check in and I did audit the findings, and essentially, it is around the central figure, the central character in this drop is the person of Devin Nunes. When he was who was mostly correct about everything that he said contemporaneously about Russiagate and, and was relentlessly demonized, including about the you know Carter Page mm-hmm. memo that from 2018. I don't know if you remember that. That was seen as like supposedly just fake nonsense that he invented on his own, but then within like nine months was totally vindicated by the Inspector General's report from the Department of Justice. And that that was pretty much the pattern with with Nunes, who you know people could you know just assume was this total lackey and was out of his mind, even though he and his staff actually had a better grasp on the reality of like the intricacies of RussiaGate than uh, the media by a long shot. And, and, and by by and large, this uh, this is a completely pantsing episode of the Twitter files for for the U.S. media because they all agreed together that um to just pass along falsehoods based on nothing okay well i'm definitely gonna look into this <laughs> i'm definitely gonna read the tiny thread because uh he and i were on the uh, front lines of this for a while so i'll have to uh have to look before i comment but uh thanks julia yeah yeah all right let's go to uh graham Graham, you're up. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, wanted a bit more about, or wanted to talk a bit more about the um, the the, the new war crimes law in the in the US. Right. And it's sort of one of those those sort of odd things. You know, this very much seems to be standard. You know, internationally, and I wondered sort of if you had a thought on that. You know, this is one of those weird ones where, like, it's explicitly in the Constitution. You know, that they added the the, the piracy clause and offences against the the laws of nations. So, is the is it really a big deal? I guess which Constitution? The U.S. Constitution. The Congress shall have the power to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas oh, right, and offences right. against the and, and offences against the laws of nations. So, sort of okay. this sort of universal jurisdiction. You know, mm-hmm. it's not very many offenses, but it's, is this really a big deal? I guess is my question. You know, most, most of Europe, New Zealand, where I'm from has this, you know, sort of, it's one of those ones where, you know, the US Congress does so much where, where do you get the power to do this? One time they do something they quite clearly have the power to do and it's, it's taken a sort of a, off on its own. I'm sort of wonder if you well, have so, any I mean, Maybe you could clarify for me. So for example, New Zealand has a law that asserts the jurisdiction of New Zealand to prosecute quote-unquote war crimes, however that's precisely defined, regardless of the nationality of who commits the 
alleged war crime or who is the victim of the alleged war crime. New Zealand asserts yes. the jurisdiction to yes. yep. try uh, the alleged perpetrator in domestic New Zealand courts or in concert yes. with some international body. In domestic New Zealand courts. And you're okay. not for long. It's sort, of, it's sort of the expectation of any country that signed up to the Geneva Convention, right. I think particularly the ones, I would say, 1947. Look, you know, when, you know, decades before the ICC, the expectation we have the ICC because there are some countries where it's impossible or difficult to prosecute or where people won't cooperate with, well, I'm not going to cooperate, cooperate with the, the UK when they're prosecuting Lockerbie bombers or something like that. And so, you know, well, we'll do it at the Hague. And it wasn't ICC then, but it was, we'll set up something. And it's, you know, the expectation of the ICC is countries will do their own. We'll step in where countries fail. And, um, you know, this one, it's not the first U.S. law. You know, piracy is there and it's been there for centuries. Um, genocide, uh, a few other sort of ones. And sort of just the, this seems like it's, you know, if you had a, an international human rights expert on here, it's like, oh, didn't, didn't we do that? All? You know, I'm surprised you took so long to do that. You know, it's just sort of a step down. You know, genocide, you've always been able to do this. It's just, okay, well, we'll extend it to slightly less serious international Well, crimes I don't mean, has it been... Uh... I don't know that it has necessarily always been the case that the U.S. asserted a just total totalizing universal jurisdiction around, quote, genocide. I know there's a domestic statute in effect in the United States that Reagan actually signed and Biden was one of the sponsors. Of. I looked into it I don't know, a month or two ago in the late 80s that criminalized the perpetration of genocide by any U.S. Citizen or any, um, I think it, it might have been any foreign national on U.S. territory. Um, so maybe it's comparable here. I mean, if, and now that I'm speaking aloud, I guess it's not that new in terms of the underlying logic uh, behind this particular law. But I, I just got to wonder, like, why is it that all of a sudden the U.S. decided or the Congress decided, yeah. like, through unanimous consent to assert this power? Now, I mean, is there an, is yeah, it no, just that, that, coincidence? That, that is very much a good question, and I am quite sure you're right. It's it's Ukraine and other things like that. Uh, you know, the war crime offence and the you know just like the genocide offence has been around since you know at least the 1940s. You know, and it's just ah, oh, and we can prosecute other people like most other countries can. So it's not sort of you know the fact that the ICC you won't be using. You know, that's sort of the expectation of the international thing is well, we shouldn't have to use the ICC. Countries should do it themselves. Uh, and, you know, e even the bit about judicial review, I suspect the reason you can't judicially review, it's probably there for the other reasons. Someone, you know, a Palestinian group is going to complain about, you know, Israel or something like that. And the U.S. government is going to say, no, we're not giving you permission to prosecute. You know, no, no other you know, independent prosecutor can bring it for them. They don't want that sort of French or Spanish type thing where some some judge goes off on a thing and, you know, arrests everyone from some South American country or something like that just who happens to be on a plane at the right time. And so I suspect the reason you're not judicially reviewing it, it's when, when the government refuses permission to prosecute some Israeli general or something who happened to be in the air and land in the country, it's, no, no, that's it. This is a foreign policy matter. We're, that's the end of it. Rather than sort of challenging it if you're the person prosecuted, I suspect it's the other way around. If you're the person prosecuted, well, but, I mean, but you wouldn't but be the... challenging it with the judicial review. You'd, you'd be applying to strike out evidence or, or get, get the, the, the arrest set aside or something in the normal criminal process way rather than judicial review but, of a decision. Well, sure, but it's not strictly a matter of foreign policy if the mechanism for bringing these charges is through a certification quote unquote by the US attorney general 
So, I mean, there could be aspects of the bringing of that so-called certification that would be judicially reviewable even by non, uh, you know, by parties withstanding other than the accused perpetrators, right? I mean, if there's some yes. flouting of like, I don't know, the fourth or first amendment over the course yeah. of the construction of that information. <laughs> right. And, and, I don't, and, and just because it's declared in a statute that <laughs> the actions of the attorney general are not judicially reviewable, doesn't mean that they're eternally non-judicially reviewable. No, right? Absolutely. I, mean, yeah. I just yeah. very much think it's, you're, you're thinking, I think some people reading this are thinking, oh, that makes it difficult for someone to challenge if they're called a terrorist or if they're called a war criminal. And I very much think that that particular section isn't targeted at people who are prosecuted. It's targeted at people who want there to be a prosecution and the government doesn't want to have one. We have a similar Maybe. rule in New Zealand. You need the Attorney, General's, Attorney General in New Zealand. You need the Attorney General's permission to prosecute a war, a war crimes matter or a genocide matter. And I very much think that this is a no, we don't want to spend our time, you know, challenging decisions of, you know, Palestinian activists or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that could be, the, that could well be the case, but it's definitely not explicitly spelled out in the text of the statute that has now been enacted. So, so I mean, I'd be curious to hear more uh, discussion about what, what the practical applicability of that um, disclaim disclaim or against uh, judicial review would actually mean in in practice. I, I don't know for sure. Um, but I, no, those, those are reasonable points, Graham, so thanks for uh, raising them. I'm actually now curious uh, about the uh, precedent for this universal jurisdiction um, assertion and how much, if at all, like this new U.S. Uh, statute like is consistent with that, or maybe it might differ in certain it, it, details or whatever. Look, it looks very much like the other sections, like the genocide section. So the jurisdiction under the genocide clause is, you know, if you're a U.S. national or a person in, you know, lawfully admitted to the residence or someone who lives in the residence or someone who was present present in the United States. And so it seems very much in line with that. And it's, um, yeah, it's the. Yeah. You know, sort of the, the Eichmann type prosecution in Israel, yeah, yeah. you know, that Israel didn't exist and Israel hadn't passed a criminal law, you know, that would have made anything Eichmann did illegal during World War Two because it didn't exist. But they still prosecute him. And it's sort of that. It's like you want to do your bit. And it's probably something that Durbin and the others have had on. The, we should do this. And yep. He's in the country and, oh, I'll take this opportunity to get everyone to actually agree to this thing I've wanted to do for the last six years. And, and, uh, and Hannah, Hannah Arendt was famously uh, scornfully dismissive of the claim jurisdiction for the Eichmann trial in Israel. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll, and, and maybe you we'll had, have to resurrect uh, some yeah, of those arguments. Who, who, who was it? And one of uh, Kennedy's, you know, ghost-written, you know, um, senators and his, what was that book he didn't write? Um, Profiles and Courage was Profiles the one who said, courage, no, yeah. we shouldn't be having a, a war crimes tribunal in, in Nuremberg sort of thing. And yeah, there's, there's arguments about it, but it's sort of one of the funny things of all these arguments you guys in America have of why is Congress doing this? This has got nothing to do with Congress. Yeah, finally gotten one where you've got the, um, the clause in the Constitution, which is sort of colloquially known as the, um, the offenses against the law of nations clause. And you finally yeah. got someone passing a law around the offenses of the law of nations. It's like, yeah, there is certainly a question to be asked why now, but I suspect that's the slightly more interesting question from a politics perspective rather than is, is this an outrageous, you know, overreach of power? Um, yeah. You know, who knows? Maybe in five years' time there will have been 600 prosecutions and I'll, I'll look like an idiot in retrospect. My guess is I probably won't, just like we haven't in New Zealand. You know, we had, we had one Israeli well, I do general think, I think, come I do to New think Zealand who they tried to prosecute and the Attorney General said, no. 
I do think the United States probably has a bit uh, greater uh, resources at its disposal to uh, undertake some of these prosecutions than New Zealand. So, Absolutely. but I take the I take the point, and it's uh, you 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 make some points that are worth uh, considering. So I, I appreciate it, Graham. Thanks. Thank you for having me on. All right, uh, let's go to uh, Joseph, and then uh, Gator, and then we'll wrap up. Unless Jenny wants to make another comment. Hey, Joseph. Hey, what's going on, guys? So I was just going to ask you um, two questions. The first one is uh, what you guys think of the Republican Party and its trajectory uh, going into 2024. Uh, I'm seeing Ron DeSantis going out there uh, railing against, I think it's like electric stoves or some shit. And uh, they're also, uh, also they're also really angry at electric cars. You know, this is like a, Let's just say that uh, I'm not uh, exactly the most uh, liberal guy out there by any means. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, but. but I, but I will say that it, it really is a. It, it seems that politics now is a is a uh, some sort of wrestling match between sissies and retards, and it doesn't seem like there's any sane opinion allowed to be expressed in public, to express observable facts, whether it's on crime or immigration or anything, who controls certain things. Um, instead, it seems like it's a bunch of schizophrenic rambling, getting mad at inanimate <laughs> objects. Yeah, sorry, jo Joseph, other I haven't been following this because, again, I've been uh, not as plugged in as I usually am for the past week or so. What is this whole controversy over electric Stoves? I mean, why is DeSantis railing against this exactly? I, I don't even really fully understand he's it. He's saying the, the communists want to take our gas stoves and okay. that food tastes better on a gas stove and that the, in the free state of Florida, gas stoves will be protected and guaranteed while we push back on Joe Brand. So, <laughs> and then proud to be an American place? Yes. Gotcha. Right. So um, what do you guys make of that? Like, what you... so there was yeah, there was like a proposal. It wasn't even a real proposal that they would uh, that the um, uh, they would ban gas stoves, or at least provide it. It wasn't even that they would provide an incentive for people to switch to electric. Uh, and then this became a right wing meme, and then everyone was like, you know, you'll take my gas stove from my cold dead hands. And then this came. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> It's just amazing what right wingers will claim to have this like a passionate emotional investment in really like a gas stove. Yeah. Had that ever occurred to anyone to have this big attachment to before this week? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I've never heard of that. This is what's happening with everything. It's ha it happened with COVID stuff. Again, yeah. I'm it's ha it happens with um, Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, the, the right is completely irrelevant in the United States, and that's not a good thing because the left is literally insane on certain issues. I agree with you. You're, you're, you're speaking my language. Uh, uh, Jordan's your name, right? Joseph Jordan. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah I, think you're, I think you're right. I think the right is basically jumps from one thing to another. I mean, it's very random. With the left, it's sort of a straight line, like racism, sexism. They have a new thing every week. The right is like, you know, gas stoves, like tomorrow. Well, I mean, the right is reactionary. You know, I mean, is that, that's being, nothing new. Be, uh, 
And so, no, that's like, not what the word, so like a, what the word reactionary means. Reactionary. Well, no, I mean, I almost react. mean reactionary in a more sort of uh, colloquial sense or in a more sort of generic sense in that they're literally, I mean, I know reactionary is like reflective of a broader sort of political uh, tendency, but in terms of like actual day-to-day, what is the right preoccupied with? It really is just a, quote, reaction to these latest sort of fleeting controversies and um, objects of fascination that they can all of a sudden assign this outsized ideological significance to, even though they've never thought about it before a couple of days ago. I, I don't think everybody well, – one thing I'll say, Richard, reading some of your stuff is um, – I think it's a bit of a chicken or the egg situation with the right. Um, there, there's there's a- absolutely no reason why um, the right has to be the you know the the the, the party of the the gas stove uh, populace or whatever. Like it it, it, it it's a I, I think actually that the conservative movement. This is a bit of a conspiracy theory, but I, I think the conservative movement is stupid on purpose. That the people that the you know the money people behind it want to keep the people that aren't happy with the status quo um, preoccupied with moronic stuff like this. And I also notice that that people are becoming on the right, uh, young people as well. They're becoming a lot more religious. And with all due respect to religious people out there, I, I respect anyone with a sincere belief, but. You can't deny that the more religious you become, the more likely you are to kind of lose touch with reality on other issues. Uh, and I'm starting to see. I think this, some religious this, people would deny that, but go ahead. Sure, of course. I may. I'm being. I'm generalizing here. It's not true for everyone, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't think that, like, for example, Tucker Carlson uh, going on Charlie Kirk and talking about how the reason Republicans lost the midterms is because. Voters are demon- voters in Montana are demonically possessed. Like that—that's that, the kind of language that sort of. Uh, Wait, what? Yeah, you voters in de- right. voters in Montana are demonically yeah. possessed. Yeah, because they didn't. Montana vote didn't vote for abortion, Democrats, but they didn't vote for their abortion. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. Um, so Tucker Carlson is. By the way, the Republicans didn't lose better. the midterms either. I mean, they control the House of Representatives right now, but it's neither here. No, they had a, well, they had a historically. I mean, they did have a historically bad. bad. Well, I mean, they retook control of a branch of government. I mean, they didn't meet quote expectations, but uh, that's just. I know you hate you hate expectations, Michael. <laughs> I hate that. It's just, it's just it's just a confabulated pundit sort of concoction. No, it's based on anyway. History. Go ahead. It's based on history. Well, well as someone, well, two thousand two. Look it up. Well, that's well, one. Okay. Well, I, I, you know, 1998. I'll, I'll tell you this, look it up. Like, I mean, it's not that. It's okay, not that's two. Wait, no, no. You're, 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 dozens and dozens and dozens, and you're finding the one or two where the midterm they, it worked out, didn't work out as bad. The, this is like the worst. The only place, like 1986. The only place the Republicans did well. The only place the Republicans did well was in New York, where they ran a law and order campaign. Um, the rest of the country, they ran on, you know, you, you're running on banning abortion in Michigan. Okay, that's not uh, Mississippi. It's Michigan. Right. You're running on. You're running on kooky shit. You're running on. Well, they did well in Florida. They did well in North Carolina. They did well in uh, Iowa. They did well in Ohio. I mean, it wasn't across the board. Yeah, that day they lost before, everything so. in the Rust Belt. Um, yeah. Which, which is actually the key to winning in the future, because uh, they don't have Arizona or Georgia anymore. 
Um, I don't think it's very good, Michael. And I think that the Republican Party, it's not that people see a lot of um, it's kind of like when Trump won in 2016, where the reaction from leftists was to call everyone in America a Nazi. That the voters are Nazis and fascists. Well, well, uh, jo- Joseph, I, I just uh, and in twenty twenty two, the the Republicans are saying, "Well, the voters they they they're possessed by the devil," and you know. Yeah, I mean, I I see what you're saying. I just don't think that the dynamic that you're highlighting here is really explainable by an increase in religiosity on the part of like younger right wing people, because if the kind of foundational impetus for their right wing politics was grounded in some sort of coherent religious philosophy, then you'd expect them to have a more sort of far-sighted program where they wouldn't be just kind of wildly lurching back and forth between these fleeting preoccupations around gas stoves and Hunter Biden's laptop well, or they're whatever. Not sincere. They're not sincere. They, they are uh, – it's a fad. They, they don't mm-hmm. actually believe it. They don't go to church. They, it, it, it's more like a, a way to own the libs without being called racist is, is how I would describe e-Christians. Um, so the point I'm getting at, though, is you can't deny that the, the Republican Party, both on the populist wing and in the establishment, have kind of agreed to set aside their more, you know, kind of white populist 2016 base for a kind of evangelical mishmash with rappers and kind of like <laughs> – you know, it's fucking crazy. Well, it's maybe 2016 true. was an anomaly in yeah, that respect. I mean, look at the, I mean, who is the who is the key constituency of the George W. Bush years for the Republican Yeah, I don't Party, think it's their, right? I don't think it's their base that won them in 2016. I think it was the moderate voter who's turned off by this religious mumbo jumbo. I'm with you. This stuff is not good uh, politically. I mean, they were there. They were in the they sort of background, but. I think the Dobbs decision came down uh, uh, the year of the election, and that, I think, hurt them a lot. And Yeah, you see this weird stuff with, like, the Kanye West thing and uh, Nick Fuentes. Um, yeah, this stuff is, I mean, this stuff Also, is I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't overly conflate, like, the conservative infotainment online complex with, like, what the actual well, you look at the- composition of the, like, coalition yeah. is. But you look, I mean, you look at these, you look at these state laws on like abortion. I mean, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty out there. So this yeah. religious stuff does have an influence. No, and I'll also say, I'll also say that uh, I do agree halfway with Michael that, like I said, people that vote Republican are not nearly as stupid as the media that they are forced to consume. So, oh, for I example, think I think they're worse than the media that they're forced Well, to here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I know you and I have a disagreement with this, but, um, the thing with the, 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 the all, everyone, Fox News, Newsmax, Jack Posobiec, they were all saying we need Kevin McCarthy. We need Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and the, the, the populist <laughs> Was Jack thing, Posobiec saying that? <laughs> yes, yes. They were all – Steve Bannon, I think, was also. I could be mistaken. It could have been people on the show. But either way, the conspiracy people and the establishment people wanted Kevin McCarthy. Trump wanted him. And Matt Sean, Gates, Sean Hannity was lacerating Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert during the, that yes. three days when, you know, the world stood still and Kevin McCarthy hadn't taken his rightful place yet as Speaker of the House. <laughs> right. And so the point of, and, and Ke- I believe, um, yeah, a lot of these people were on the side of Kevin McCarthy. But Matt Gates, who 
I, I know Richard, you don't like him, and I know you like Kevin McCarthy, and because <laughs> you're a libertarian. <laughs> Richard's a huge <laughs> fan of Kevin McCarthy. He has a <laughs> shrine to him in his closet. Yes, no, I'm, I'm fucking around. But the point I'm get, the point I'm getting at though is that um, the Matt Gates has actually better political instincts by getting in his way, understanding that conservative voters, not the not the activists. The voters, you know, the average middle class person in, you know, Pennsylvania or Ohio hates the GOP establishment. And, yeah, Matt, Matt Gates yeah. also has some sort of uh, atypical uh, cross partisan tendencies as well. In that, like, if you look at the floor speeches yes. that he gave for why he was opposing Kevin McCarthy. He didn't make it specifically about like intra Republican turmoil or anything. It was like a bipartisan critique, and he tends to incorporate that into his sort of um, statements of purpose much of the time in a way that departs from a lot of other Republicans. So I do, I do think he has like a bit of a different right. perspective than most. He used to work. He he'll work with Ro Khanna or right exactly. Uh, hell, he'll he'll work with AOC if she'll have him. I mean, yeah, the guy, yeah. Whatever you think of him, he's very. Silly. I think that guy. It is presidential like he's good he could make he was uh t- he, him and he was the uh <laughs> he was tulsi gabbard's uh proxy voter for a while like before like a month or two before she left uh congress like when proxy voting was still allowed in the house like he would actually yeah. vote on her behalf and vice versa um, yeah. So I mean, the guy, the guy's a freaking greasy used car salesman. Don't get. And me also, he's been railroaded. I mean, there's no reason to believe that the the sex trafficking stuff allegations against him have been borne out whatsoever. And he was being, you know, seemingly well, wrong. Quietly, but, quietly, uh, no, the, the what happened was the Israelis tried to blackmail him. Literally, you can read about it on the American Conservative. And then when he didn't go along with it, the Department of Justice got involved. Then they quietly, after embarrassing him in the media, quietly dropped the charges. You got to look into this, actually. It's pretty crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, nevertheless, uh, I think that if Biden pivots to the center on immigration, the Republicans would get, are going to get slammed in 2024. They're going to lose to an 83 year old man. Like, <laughs> it's going to happen if, if, if Biden pivots to the center, does even symbolic things on the board. Well, it, it all will be for naught because at least uh, Ukraine will be free. All right. Thanks, Joseph. <laughs> all right. Um, let's go to uh, Gator and then uh, we'll we'll wrap it up. Hey, Gator. Hey, guys. Um, couple. Of, I just. I guess the topics I'd like to sort of talk about are the um, this um, uh, war crimes thing in the context of, of international law, and then a quick bit of speculation about how I sort of perceive the bigger picture of the theatrics of this Biden um, information stuff. Um, so on the on the first bit, I think it's telling that a man like Scott Ritter can stand in front of a local crowd in Bethlehem, uh, New Bethlehem, and explain to them Article 51 uh, of the UN Charter. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Where was it? New Bethlehem... Yeah, well, the latest version of this explanation is in New Bethlehem, nearby to him, doing a citizens' forum. Okay, got where it. Where he was attacked by so pro-Ukrainian um, CCD spinmeisters. He, he details a lot of his perception on this. It's very interesting to watch, right? But anyway, it's left to him to explain to practically the world the legal basis for Russia's 
activity. And some of it's partially obvious anyway, because Russia didn't recognize the DPR-LPR until two days before it made its move, which meant that if it did that, it had to recognize those two places before it invaded because it's then saying we now recognize the independence of these two states, which are effectively requiring defense, right? So it runs into a preemptive defense um, legal basis, which Ritter lays out under Article 51. Nobody that I've read in, in any mainstream press ever, anywhere, has gone to the extent of repeating, not even explaining on their own basis, but repeating Ritter's explanation of this. Right now, I find it telling. I mean, you know, anyone can do it. The Grey Zone haven't done it. Aaron Marte's not done it. They, they won't even go into this. They, what, they, what all the Western journalists are doing, who are even anti-narrative, are skirting this. And I think that what it says, personally, is that none of them have the guts to try to, to lay out the international case that Russia would use as a defence in international law, because to do so would attract the gunfire from every single um, entity in the West saying, you are now uh, definitely defending Russia and you are an absolute pro-Kremlin uh, tool, right? Even though they would actually be discussing international law. And I, I think that's grossly inadequate because when you then bring well, it can to I, this... Well, can I ask you quickly? Yeah. I mean, is it fair to say, and you're more familiar with... Ritter's recent work than I am, although I have some familiarity and I've listened to enough of him to have a generally accurate impression of who he is. But is it fair to say that he actually is, I mean, I don't want to even say pro-Russia because that's an oversimplification, but he's in spiritual or political support of the Russian war effort in some respect, or is that unfair to say? He's, he'll, he's openly and more explicitly recently said that he believes that A, Russia will military win, B, Russia is essentially under international law, roughly justified to make the case that it did and do what it did because of the constructs inside international law. Even if, when you get into the nature of war, one, it should have been avoided because they laid out concessions and they laid out a framework of why and how they were going to do it and that they could it could be avoided if discussions around topics would have happened, right? Um, Ritter's not even... I don't think he's the unrealistic kind of guy to say they should have got everything on their list. They should have had talks to drive towards some of what was on their list and that would have avoided the war. And he doesn't really make any, any he doesn't pull any punches about the fact that he is, he is against the US uh, Western extension of the war like this, um, which basically makes him look to anyone that he is pro un, unequivocally pro-Russian, but it's not, He's not. If you listen closely to the basis of his argument, he is trying to look at it from a, a fairly analytical international war point first and then say, so if you were Russia with this perception of the world, what would you do? You would do this. And, the, and part of the uh, equivalency or, uh, would be, well, how has the US justified any of what it's ever done in the past. It's never, apart from Serbia, which is what, which is this sets this construct up, the, 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 the equivalency construct in international law that the Ritter says that Russia is using. The US did this in Europe in the Serbian Kosovan war. And that actually in, in essentially enables the argument Russia is now making. Now, now no Western journalist talks about this. And I would ask, I would have to ask the question, Michael, you know, why do you think that is? 
Um, well, I mean, f- roughly for the re- the reason that you spelled out there, which is that you'd be automatically just taken through the wood chipper as a Russian stooge. I mean, although I have to say, I don't think that, for example, the gray zone and Aaron Monte and people such as that, who I guess I'm somewhat in simpatico with on certain things, are really that worried about those allegations being directed at them. I mean, I'm, I'd, be, I'd be curious from an, I mean, I wouldn't really hesitate to make that case from an intellectual standpoint to understand what Russia could assert as its basis in international law for doing what it's doing. I mean, I think you can explain without endorsing. Um, but yeah, I guess I just, I'm, I'm not exactly sure like what coverage would you imagine should exist that hasn't just like a more c- concrete outline of this legal rationale or well, like reporting on it to, okay, to some so, extent, like what would you want to be done that hasn't been done exactly? Well, because, because, because what I think is happening here is that inside the perception management narrative sphere of the, of the agitprop West's agitprop um, media, what we're seeing is a case of better to be first than to be right. So basically what you want to do is you want to convince enough of your populace that, uh, um, and, and peddle it hard that somebody somewhere is a war criminal. And we need, we need a legitimization of Russia being a war criminal. So we'll even create artificial constructs inside our own borders that are not going to be applicable anywhere in the world simply so that we can say, hey, look, we set up this legitimate legal construct. We used it to label Russia a war criminal, uh, even if we're never going to get anyone in jail. But that's the label. That's all you need to have is the label. And off the back of that label, we're going to go see enemy, enemy, enemy. And then we're going to and then we're going to use that to continuously override this requirement to reduce military spending. And we're going to just continuously use this these kind of things to um, to drive the trajectory because because perception is key but to, to sustain or to suppress really big over public um, rejection of that because I mean I, I think that most most politicians are immune to public um, uh, perception but what you don't want in a time of very extreme or increasingly extreme poverty and economic strife is your population finally rising up and really in real terms rejecting violently um, budgetary uh, corruption, shall we say. So I think that's what's roughly going on with this, right? Now, the reason why I think it's important for for actually a counter to this and saying, one, this probably is meaningless legally because it, it won't have any practical outcome on the so-called war criminals. Two, as you pointed out, it's hypocritical because the US, uh, Russia and China don't recognize the ICC. Only the UK does. And the UK even rigged that process because they put 10 of their own soldiers up post Iraq and then they collapsed the cases. So they never even got into the ICC. It was just bullshit. The whole construct is meaningless, right? It only gets little, little guy, only little guys enter the ICC, right? And that's it. Yeah. It's like, it's like an African warlord here and there. Exactly, isn't it? It's just, it's just, we'll pick on one guy to, 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 to just say, this, look, the system works. Yeah, it, it, against, against no one. And so, so if, if people came to understand this, this level of theatrics to me personally, because I, I don't think many, many people do, because it's never covered, at least you would get some kind of coherent pushback. 
against against the way people's perception is managed. I mean, this is why the Twitter files is not being covered. Like you open many pages of the, of, of the papers and type in Twitter files, the coverage is either non-existent or it's absolutely minimal. And what's minimal is also a or it's or it's attacking the journalists. <laughs> Pardon? Or, or insofar as there's any coverage at all, it's to like, denigrate the journalists. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which tells you everything. As soon as as soon as something switches into ad hominem, then you know what the game is, it, 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 and that's so obvious. But it's happened, and it's still being employed all the time. It's, it's childish, basically. So, I mean. I get frustrated by this because what, where this leads me is this. No matter whether you're Aaron Marte in the grey zone or yourself, I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way, or whatever, right? I completely believe that, and I've tested this with Aaron. I literally asked him, what does he think about the submissions of Russia to the UNSC of evidence about biolabs? He literally said to me, well, I don't really follow Russian propaganda. He's like, hang on, what, you don't follow... Uh, translated into English, Russian evidence they're submitting to the highest international body in the world. And you, you are directly going to call that propaganda before you've read it. I mean, that's not a credible response to me for a, an objective journalist. And it turns out over time, after I asked those questions, bang, four or five countries at the UNSC pressed for an investigation that was vetoed by the West. The, the, the US lied at the UNSC meeting. A week later, it was admitted by, and that lie was shown up by Newland. And so, and since then, further evidence has come out. Further evidence has been presented to the point where the OSCW and the UN are refusing to even investigate. They won't even investigate it. Why? Because there's obviously truth to it. And then you've got the problem with the Hunter Biden laptop showing that it's real that there are aspects of this that are real. Yet Aaron Marte is there going, I'm really into Russiagate, I'm really into the war, but I won't look at these things. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to uh, bash, I don't, I don't want to turn this uh, into a it's, Aaron Marte bashing session, but I understand what you're getting at. Yeah. I doubt, I mean, I, I, I would find it hard to believe that Aaron Marte would just on principle refuse to look or just to review a submission by Russia to the UN Security Council on biolabs. I mean, I don't know what exactly he said when in response to your question, but I, that doesn't sound like Aaron's MO to me. Um, in general terms, I mean, just, just speaking for myself, there is, you know, you do have to be a bit sensitive to what you're putting out there in terms of perceptions of whether you're just uh, Russian propagandists. I'm not saying that one should allow oneself to be hobbled by the specter of that allegation because it's kind of ever-present anyway. Um, but, you know, without independently verifying what's in a Russian uh, UN Security Council submission around biolabs, it's a bit tricky to, you know, journalistically promote the allegations contained therein. Yeah, I understand um, that, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I would feel the same way about you, uh, U.S. submission, right? So, um, I don't know. I think uh, benefit of the doubt, definitely in Aaron's case, uh, would, would be warranted um, in that regard. I mean, there's only so much that <laughs> I mean. Uh, he's uh, he's in a very rarefied group of people who are, as you kind of put it, counter narrative or something. So, um, but you know, I think as an intellectual exercise on the international law question, it definitely is warranted to 
examine the credibility or the merits of whatever argument Russia might put forward. Um, if you're talking about then endorsing it normatively or journalistically supporting it in some way, that's a separate endeavor that I probably wouldn't participate in. Um, but you know, I've I've even you know I've tried to follow that to some degree. Like I even in call-ins with uh, Richard in the past, I've talked about you know Lavrov making this presentation at the UN around the U.S. in Russia's perspective no longer being a neutral party and therefore being subject to laws of war and um, it being you know legally permissible to you know strike in a retaliatory way against U.S. targets given their role in the armament furnishing operation and so forth. So, I mean, I, I think on, on principle, there's nothing at all uh, wrong with analyzing those claims. Uh, it's just uh, in terms of like what content would then be produced around those claims. That's an open question in terms of its uh, viability for me. Um, I'm not sure that I would want to just, you know, launch a journalistic crusade to like, support Russian claims, right? But being a cognizant of those claims and, aware of their implications, I think, is totally warranted. Yeah, but it would never be about trying to justify either side. What it would be about, for me, the functional purpose of this, I mean, certainly the functional purpose of me listening to Scott Ritter and looking into Article 51 and listening to the construct of what he's describing tells me that it is inadequate for the Western narrative to, to run around banding war criminal charges about based upon the invasive act because that doesn't match the argument yet to be fully evaluated under international law, but it is in keeping with pre-existing um, precedents which the West has relied upon in the past, yeah. right? Important to know, but most people don't seem to know it because it's not being covered. And none of that is a defense of Russia, right? It's simply a breakdown of, of, um, of potentiality contained within international law, which also explains why Russia was very politically tactical about what language it used, because it didn't use war, special military operation, and the timing at which it recognised DPR-LPR, because it, it didn't recognise it at all, or either of them, at all, until it had, it had basically gone, shit, we're going to have to go in. Because it wanted to keep everything inside Ukraine, it wanted the DPR-LPR with all its gas to be part of Ukraine, right? And they wanted the internal conflict to be resolved via Minsk. If you take, if you take as much as you can of their statements on, on roughly on face value, right? Um, yeah. Which I think to some extent, as time has gone on, it's, there's actually quite a reasonable basis to sort of take a fair amount of what they've done over a very long period of time in relatively good faith, right? Because they're very consistent players on this respect. That's, so anyway, that's the value I see, not as a defence of Russia, but as an educative process of the pop, of your anyone's audience into mm -hmm. how we are, are what the West is literally peddling perceptive bullshit at its own audience in order to create ideas about criminality and enemies, which ultimately are used for policy furtherance of that is nothing that is not useful for citizens. No, I think um, you put it in a compelling way there, uh, Gator, as usual. Good food for thought. Um, I'll uh, ponder it, send me any materials you think are relevant, and I'll uh, gladly take a look at it. Um, all right, everybody.
All right, everybody. Well, we're going to wrap up there. Richard has um, already taken the lead in uh, hightailing it out of here. So uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll uh, reconvene soon. So bye, everybody.